I'd like you to join me in your Bibles in James chapter 4. A husband and wife who had been married for some time were driving down the road in their car when the wife, seated over by the door, turned to her husband and said, I was just thinking about how it used to be when we were dating and when we were first married and how we would sit so close together and you would drive with your arm around me and we were all lovey-dovey. She said, I miss those times. Whatever happened to us? Why don't we do that anymore? And after a moment, her husband turned his head and said, Honey, you'll have to tell me because I'm sitting where I always did. This morning... I want you to think about your relationship with the Lord. And I want you to ask yourself a question. Where am I sitting? Am I sitting close to the Lord all lovey-dovey or am I sitting over by the door? And if you are sitting over by the door staring out the window, guess who moved? You know what's so appealing about the window? James tells us in verse 4, it's friendship with the world. It's the world that captures your attention. It's the world that captures your affection. It's the world that offers to satisfy you and fulfill you. And whenever you fall into that trap, it drives you away from God. That's why verse 4 says, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. And the world really appeals to three desires that we picked out last week in verses 1 to 4. One is the desire for possessions. It's the desire to have. The second is the desire for pleasure. The desire to feel good. And the third is the desire for prestige, which is based in pride. And that is the desire to be somebody. Those three desires shouldn't surprise us because John said in 1 John 2.16, all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's all that's in the world. What are they? The lust of the flesh, that's your pleasures. The lust of your eyes, what are you looking out there for? Possessions. The pride of life, what is that? prestige. So chapter 4 verses 1 to 10 is a passage addressed to you. If in your relationship with the Lord, you have slid over by the door and you're staring out the window looking to satisfy your pleasures, looking to gather more possessions, and looking to bolster your prestige. First five verses give us the symptoms of worldliness The last five verses give us the solution to that. Or as I've laid it out in your outline, the first half of this passage tells us what it means to slide away. And the last half of this passage tells us how to draw near. The first part is about sliding away, and I've picked out three indicators that will tell you you're sitting over by the door. Number one is the impact on others. And we saw this in detail last time in verses 1 and 2. One clear indicator that you have slid away from the Lord 
is that your relationships with other people are marked by conflict, by envy, by fighting, and by quarrels. If you can't seem to get along with other people, it's an indicator of worldliness. Second indicator is the impact on you in verses 2 and 3. Notice the end of verse 2. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. The problem with desiring the things of the world is that you can never get enough. And even if you could, they never satisfy. When you get the things of the world, they, they promise to satisfy, but they leave you more thirsty and more hungry. I just did a memorial service on Thursday for a young man, 23 years old, who has sat in this auditorium. He took a gun last Sunday and put it to his head and killed himself. The world promises to satisfy you. But I will tell you this. The prince of this world is a liar and he's a thief and he's a murderer. And if you're looking to be fulfilled by the things of this world, will never satisfy you because you're seeking all the wrong things in all the wrong places. Can I tell you something ironic? You know who has everything you're really looking for? God. James said in chapter 1 and verse 17, every good thing and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father. And James says, the reason you don't have it is because you don't ask. The hymn writer said, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. You say, but Dan, I am praying. I'm praying for these things and I don't seem to be getting an answer. God doesn't seem to be giving them to me. Well, then that's you. you're described in verse 3. Look at verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. James says when you do pray, you're coming to God with your selfishness. And instead of praying thy will be done, you're praying my will be done. You may be pious, you may be prayerful, but you are asking God to fit into your program. And I'll tell you something that should be very obvious to you. God is not that naive. God is not a cosmic busboy that you snap your fingers and he comes running. God is not a genie in a bottle that if you just rub him the right way, you will get your wishes fulfilled. You see, God is far more concerned about our motives in prayer than he is about our words in prayer. God, if you make me famous, I'll witness for you. 
I'll be Tim Tebow. Just make me a great football player. God, if you'll make me a millionaire, I'll give money to the poor. God, if you give me a Lamborghini Diablo, I'll pick up kids for Sunday school. See, that's not prayer. That is worldliness cloaked in piety. Worldliness has an impact on us. It leaves us empty because it lures us into seeking possessions, pleasure, prestige, and we miss out on God's real blessings because the things that really satisfy are in the hand of God. And if you're not asking him, or you're asking him with wrong motives, that's an indicator that you have slid over by the door. Third indicator is the impact on God in verses 4 and 5. What effect does our worldliness have on God? Have you ever paused to think about how God feels about your selfish desires and your pride? Well, look at the first two words in verse 4. You adulteresses. Most of us tend to take friendship with the world very lightly. What does God think about it? He calls it adultery. Why? What is adultery? Well, that's when someone breaks his vows. That's when someone is unfaithful. Romans chapter 7 and verse 4 says we are married to Jesus Christ. And throughout the New Testament, it calls us his bride. And so when we are linked up with the world, when our affections are for the world, when we are looking to the world to satisfy us, we are breaking our vows to God. We are having an illicit love affair with the world. How would you feel if when your wife wanted a new dress, you went to the guy next door and he bought it for her and took her out on the town? How would you feel if your spouse was intimately and affectionately giving yourself to another. Some of you know exactly how that feels. And that's the same way God feels when you and I give our love to the things of this world. That is the emotional pain that he experiences. And then James goes on in verse 4, saying, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Don't you know that friendship with the world equals hostility toward God? Don't you know that when you make yourself a friend of the world, you are making yourself an enemy of God? You see, you can't have both. A lot of us think we can hold God's hand and hold the world's hand and it's all okay. 
And James says, no, it's either or. Because they are mutually exclusive. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and materialism. You cannot do it. You say, I love God and I love the world. No. Because if you're trying to do both, you are only loving one. You are only holding to one. And the one that you are loving, the one that you are holding to is the world. And you are despising God. You say, is God really that sensitive about our affection? Yeah. You know why? Because he loves you that much. And that's why verse 5 is so revealing. It says, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Now James presents that as a quote, but it's not really a quote from the Old Testament. It's really the theme of the Old Testament. Because throughout the Old Testament, we're told that God is a jealous God. And whenever I find that quote in the Old Testament where God says, I am a jealous God, it's always in the context of idolatry. God is not jealous in a bad way. He's not jealous of you. He's jealous for you because he loves you so much. And when you give your affection to idols, when you seek to worship other things, God's heart is jealous because he loves you so much. He created you, he redeemed you, he married you. And when your heart goes elsewhere, it breaks his heart. So there are the symptoms of worldliness. The impact on others, conflict in your relationship. The impact on you, you're empty inside because you're missing God's blessings. And the impact on God, he feels the pain of your betrayal. You say, Dan, I think that describes me. As I look at my heart honestly this morning, I realize that I'm controlled by my pleasures. I recognize that my heart is filled up with pride. My relationships are marked by conflict. I've turned my affections toward the world. In my relationship with the Lord, I have slid over by the door. And I'm staring out the window. Well, if that's you this morning, and you want to do something about it, I've got good news for you. Because the second half of this passage is about drawing near. And I love the words of verse 6 that introduces it. He says, but God gives a greater grace. When you are far from God, God doesn't give you what you deserve. What you deserve is that he leans over, opens the door, and kicks you out. 
God doesn't give you what you deserve. He gives you what you don't deserve, and that's what grace is. You say, but you don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter. Because notice, it says he gives a greater grace. Greater than what? Greater than your sin. Romans chapter 5 and verse 20 says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God never runs out of grace. However much you need, he's got more. And I love the way John puts it in John chapter 1 and verse 16. He says, we have all received grace upon grace. And I always envision sitting at the ocean when the waves are big. And one comes in and another comes in and they come in one after another. And that's the way God's grace is. It comes in one after another and it just never stops coming. That's the grace of God. So no matter how far you have slid away from God this morning, no matter how entangled you have become in the world, no matter how hostile you have become toward God, no matter how much spiritual adultery you have committed, God has more than enough grace to meet your need. He has more than enough grace to welcome you back. How much do you need? He's got more. So God is giving more grace than you need. But you have to receive it. He's giving grace, but you have to receive it. How do you receive it? How do you open your arms and slide back across the seat? Well, I see five steps in these verses. Number one is to humble yourself. Because in verse 6, quoting from Proverbs 3.34, he says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Your pride stiff arms God. Your pride repulses God. He can handle your sin, but when you're, not, when you're too proud to admit it, that keeps God away. So the first condition on coming back to the Lord is that you must humble yourself. Now, how do you humble yourself? You say, I guess I'll walk around with my head down, my shoulders kind of sloped. That's humility. No, that's false humility. How do you humble yourself? Well, I think the key is in verse 10, where he repeats the phrase. He says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. I don't think you will fully humble yourself until you come into the presence of the Lord. And when you see the Lord for who he is, you will see yourself for who you are. Remember Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6? He says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He saw the Lord in all his glory. And when he saw the Lord for who he is, then he saw himself and he said what? Woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. 
to humble himself, he just had to see the Lord for who he is. And in that context, he saw himself in humility. Step number one is to humble yourself. Step number two is in verse seven. Submit yourself to God. That word submit is a military term. It means to surrender to the proper authority. It's the idea of recognizing your rank. Paul understood that. That's why throughout the New Testament he calls himself a doulos, a slave. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. He is the master, and I obey him. So when you submit to God, what you're saying is, Lord, I have been inflated with pride. I have been in charge of my life. I have been sitting on the throne. I have been ruling as king, and I want to surrender to you. I want to let you take charge. I want to acknowledge that you are the authority. Lord, I've been doing everything in my life to please me. I'm going to humble myself and submit to you and do only those things that please you. Submission says, yes, sir, to Jesus Christ. And this is the posture of humility because pride always rebels and humility always surrenders. Humility says, I submit to you. I surrender to you. Now, you know what will happen when you do these first two steps? When you humble yourself and submit yourself to the Lord, Satan is going to show up because he's not going to take this line down. He's going to come and whisper in your ear and say, you can't live like a Christian. If you start talking about Jesus, what are the people at work going to think? You can't do this. You can't change. You can't be different. And that's why the third step is what? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You say, Dan, I don't have much problem with the devil. Well, that's because you're walking with him. If you're going the direction he wants you to go, why would he fuss with you? It's when you humble yourself and you submit yourself to the Lord and you start obeying Him. Now you're going the opposite direction. And He's going to show up. And James says you have to resist Him. You have to stiff arm Him. That word means stand against Him. Hold your ground. And that's always the exhortation in the New Testament. In Ephesians 6.13, it says, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. 1 Peter 5.8 says, your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him. You don't have to go find him. You don't have to attack him. You don't have to chase him. You don't have to conquer him. All you have to do is submit yourself to God and stand against him. And what is the promise? He will flee. And then step number four. In verse eight. Draw near to God 
and he will draw near to you. Now, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. So in a spatial sense, you can't get any closer to God. But James is not talking here about a spatial sense. He's talking about a spiritual sense, a relational sense. And James says, if you will draw near to God relationally, he will draw near to you. If you will slide across the seat, he will reach out and embrace you. Remember what the father or the prodigal son did? when he started to come home. It says in Luke 15, 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran to him, embraced him, and kissed him. It's the only time in the Bible we ever see God running. Who's he running to? The one who's coming back home. You're over by the window staring out and you will humble yourself and submit to God and stiff arm the devil and draw near. He will run to you. He runs out of compassion. And then the fifth step is repent. Verse 8 says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. I think James mentions our hands because that's what we lift up to God in prayer. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 15, God says to Israel, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you because your hands are full of bloodshed. In 1 Timothy 2.8, it says we're to pray, lifting up holy hands. See, God can tell a lot about you from your hands. James says, cleanse your hands. How do you cleanse your hands? 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So James says, cleanse your hands, you what? Sinners. Some of you may be offended by that term. He's talking here to believers and professing believers, and he says, you're a sinner. One of the reasons I think a lot of us are far from God is because we don't call sin, sin. We say, I've got a weakness in that area. No, you've got wickedness in that area. I kind of have a problem with that. No, that's sin. I'm an addict. I'm a victim. No, you're a sinner. We have to call sin, sin. We have to take responsibility for it and be honest about it with the Lord if we're going to express true repentance. And then he says, after saying, cleanse your hands, you sinners, he says, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That term double-minded is only used two times in the Bible. James used it in chapter 1 and verse 8 of the doubting person who goes back and forth. They waffle. Here he uses it of the person who has one eye on the Lord and one eye on the world. They're double-minded. I want to 
love the Lord and I want to love the world. And he says, you're double-minded. What do you need to do? Purify your heart. That means you're to be purely and totally devoted to him alone. And then verse 9 says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, some people take this verse out of context. I've met Christians, I think they make this their life verse. You know, they look like they've been baptized in vinegar. They like this idea of miserable mourning gloom, and they say, yes, I'm walking with the Lord. I'm miserable. This is not a general commandment. This is in the context of repentance. And James is not forbidding laughter. He's talking about people who are laughing at their sin. And if you're laughing about your sin, James is saying you better weep about that. Genuine repentance is associated with godly sorrow. What James is saying is you need to get serious about your sin. You need to be broken about your sin to the point of weeping about it to the point of acknowledging it the way God acknowledges it. The word confess means to say the same thing. And when we come to repent, we say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. And he hates our sin. It's like Peter when he was out in the courtyard. Jesus was on trial inside. He was by the fire. He denied the Lord three times. And then the cock crowed. And he remembered Jesus' words, and he turned to look at Jesus, and at that very moment, Jesus turned and looked at him. No words were exchanged. But it says Peter went out and wept bitterly. He was broken over his sin. Psalm 51, 17 says, A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God is opposed to your pride. But he will always draw near to your brokenness. And I love that this passage doesn't end there. It ends in verse 10 with a promise and a paradox. Because when you take this humble posture, God is not going to leave you there. Look at verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. God's economy is full of paradoxes. And in God's economy, the way up is the way down. F.B. Meyer once wrote, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves, one above another. And the taller we grow, the easier to reach them. Now I find that God's gifts are on shelves one beneath another. And the lower we stoop, the more we get. We're taught to think that we've got to rise up and reach for things, and God is saying no. You need to humble yourself, and you will be given everything you need.
So James says, if you humble yourself, submit to God, resist the devil, draw near and repent, he will exalt you. He will lift you up from that penitent posture. He'll flood you with forgiveness. He will wipe away your tears. He will remove your sorrow. He will fill you with joy. He will exalt you to the heights of heaven. What a paradox. When you proudly seek fulfillment in this world, you're never satisfied. When you humbly come back to God, he totally satisfies. What did the prodigal son learn? He learned that everything he was looking for out in the world, he found back home. He went out looking for possessions. What did he find when he came back home? The best robe, the ring, the sandals, the fatted calf. He went out looking for pleasure. What did he find when he came back home? A party. He went out looking for prestige. I'll make a name for myself. When he came back home, what did he find? He came back saying, I just want to be a servant. And his father said, no. You're my son. Everything he was looking for in the world, he found back home. And I would say that to you this morning. Everything you're looking for out there, you will find at home. So in your relationship with the Lord, if you're sitting over by the door, staring out the window, filled with selfish desires, filled with pride, encountering strife in your relationships, empty inside, bringing pain to the heart of God, James says there's a way back. Humbly, let go of your attractions. Turn around and slide back across the seat. And God will put his arm around you and draw you near. Just come back home. Are you looking for possessions in the world? The Bible says he's blessed you with all spiritual blessings. The Bible says you are a joint heir with Jesus Christ who is the heir of all things. They're all at home. Are you desiring pleasure? The Bible says in his presence is fullness of joy. You will never be happier than you are when you are surrendered in the presence of Jesus Christ. Are you looking for prestige? The Bible says you're a child of God and you are the bride of Jesus. And Revelation 3.21 says you will one day sit down with Jesus on his throne. It's all at home. So my question to you this morning is, what more could you want? You got it all, what more could you want? And if you've slid away from the Lord, draw near today.